0: The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. If you could please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 11 is where we're going to be today and there are sermon outlines by the door. Every week what we do as a church is we, we worship together and then we open up God's word and we go uh, right through the scriptures and, and seek to understand what God has revealed to us through his word and uh, by his spirit he helps us to understand those things. And, and so one thing you can do is take good notes to remember some of the stuff that we talk about today. You can also ask good questions and, and this morning we're going to be talking about questions. Uh, as, as a just as a pastor and as someone who wants to grow as a man, um, my physical growth I think has stopped, but uh, uh, my, my spiritual growth, my relational growth, I, I hope to keep growing in these things. And one thing I've learned is the power of a good question. That's something I've been thinking a lot about lately is it, there's something about a question, an incisive question, a, a, an open-ended question that can get people to understand and connect with you in a way that a statement almost never can. There is a power in good questions. And Jesus knows this. We're going to see him, Jesus, the master teacher this morning, as he does what master teachers do. He's going to repeat a lot of the lessons that he's already taught his disciples. Why? Because they're slow to understand. How many of you have heard Pastor Bill say that repetition is the mother of knowledge? Whatever that means, right? And then he repeats that again and again and again until we get it. And here Jesus is going to repeat a bunch of lessons, and he's going to ask some key questions, one of which, as we get to the end of our passage, Lord willing, if we make it all the way there, may be the most important question that we can answer in this life. And uh, don't skip ahead if you want to, you know, if you want to maintain the suspense, but he's going to ask a question that If we think about it, and if we think about the answer to this question, it will reveal so much about us, and it's so, so important. The answer to this question will determine what you believe about where you came from, the meaning of your life, your morality, your values, how you determine right and wrong, your destiny after this life. It's all wrapped up in the answer to this simple question, and we will get a chance to answer that question today. And each one of you here today, I just urge you to answer it or at least to discuss it with someone after this sermon, after the service is over. Don't let this just pass. Answer this question, because it may be the most significant answer of your life. Can you do that? Can you agree with me that you'll talk about this with someone afterward? Yes? Come on, can you? Can you do that? It's, it's not, not hard, not a hard ask, and it may be just the most critical moment of your life. Uh, today we're going to cover more ground than we ordinarily do in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be going kind of rapid fire through these passages and not able to spend a lot of time on each one of it because the way Mark, the, the gospel writer, arranges this passage, it's little story, little story, little story, little story. They're all in, in rapid succession and I think he's making a point and he's making a point that reiterates a point that he's made in some longer stories leading up to this. And so w- what we see in this is all very familiar to us. If you remember Mark 6 and Mark 7, Jesus has fed this great Great crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children. He's gone on a sea journey, actually walking out on the water to get in a boat with his disciples. He's, he's debated with skeptical uh, and hostile Pharisees who, who don't really understand what it means to be righteous. As they're focused all on these externals and, and these outward things and not really concerned about their own hearts. And then this, this kind of progression culminates with Jesus arriving in a new place and healing someone, restoring the senses of someone who has lost their sense. You'll remember the, the person who is deaf and, and mute and unable to speak and how Jesus touches and heals this man with such sensitivity. And so here, we're going to go through the same pattern again. We're going to reestablish this pattern in Mark chapter 8. Did I say turn to Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 11, as uh, Pastor Milton would, I, would say? Did I say that, Milton? <laughs> okay. Now that we're there, Mark chapter 8, verse 11, what I want you to to see is, and I'll summarize this flow in my own terms, is we're going to see the self-righteous rejected. Jesus turning away from those who are self-righteous. We're going to see the students, those closest to Jesus, actually rebuked in this passage. We'll see senses restored, just as we have in previous passages, and then at the end, we'll see the Savior recognized. Last week, Jesus took seven loaves, and we Talked talks about generosity as, as people gave their meager offering of a lunch, and Jesus used it to feed 4,000 people in a Gentile region, just as he had fed 5,000 in a Jewish region earlier. And we see this miracle mirror, and if it's not an explicit teaching, he's, he's showing us something about himself, that he has come not just for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. He has actually come to bring salvation and good news to all people, but only for those that have ears to hear and eyes to see him for who he truly is. It's important to know who you're talking to, isn't it? Like When you have a conversation, have you ever had a conversation with someone and, and only afterward realized who it was you were talking to? That's what Jesus is about to encounter. Some people who just simply don't know, don't understand, don't get who he is. A couple years ago, I remember uh, I had appendicitis. I was going to get my appendix taken out. And I was in kind of the pre-op area I, I was getting ready to, to go under, and they were going to take my appendix out, and the anesthesiologist walks in the room and is looking at a chart and says, um, I said appendix, says, all right, well, it looks like we're taking out your gallbladder today. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute. No, that's, that's not right. And she said, oh, uh, sorry, I have the wrong chart. Uh, don't worry, I'm not the one that does the surgery. And I was like, man, ah, <laughs> really comforting. It's important to know who you're talking to, isn't it? And uh, thankfully they took out, I think they took out my appendix, not my gallbladder that day. But here are some people who just miss it. These, the self-righteous rejected. These Pharisees come to Jesus and starting in, uh, excuse me, verse 11, it says this. The Pharisees came, and this is Jesus they're talking to. He's, he's set sail. He's coming to this region of Dalmanutha. I don't know how this works, but there's Pharisees just waiting on the beach for him, like ready to go with their, their questions and their challenges. The Pharisees, these religious elites, it says they came and began to argue with him seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now this interaction, like I said, doesn't last long, does it? Jesus arrives by boat in this new region. No sooner has he pulled into the shore than than the welcoming party is there. Pharisees there to challenge and ask him questions and demand a sign from him. And apparently what Jesus has already done is not enough for them. If they weren't there, they've at least heard how he fed 5,000 in the wilderness and 4,000 on the other side of the lake, how he's healed the blind, how he's healed the deaf, how he's cast demons out of people and they've seen or at least heard of these things. And here they come and they want their personal sign. They want their own confirmation. And they, these skeptics and critics of Jesus, these prominent citizens, these religious elites, these important, quote-unquote, good people, are demanding that he prove to them that he is someone worth listening to. It's like this, if you are really the Christ, then fill in the blank. If you're really the Son of God, then fill in the blank. Do this, do that. What does that sound like? Does that sound at all like the temptation that Jesus suffered in the wilderness as he was fasting for 40 days and nights and Satan came to him again and again saying, if you're really the Christ, prove it by fill in the blank. And here with that same spirit, these Pharisees come before him, and and there's this heart of things toward God. Maybe you're in this place this morning, this heart of things uh, towards God that will never be satisfied. Never satisfied. Like you've seen, you've seen his creation. You've seen his goodness. Maybe you've even seen your need of him. Maybe you're listening online or you're here this morning, and, and, and you're still thinking day after day, Jesus, if you're real, prove it to me. Prove it to me. As if he hasn't revealed himself already. If I need a savior, prove it to me. If I need help to overcome uh, sin, prove it to me. If God is so good as we've just been singing, prove it. And yet despite those moments where where maybe you recognize the vastness of the universe, the order in which this world was created, the the perfect fine-tuning of this earth and this life that we have to be able to exist, Maybe even grasping your need for someone beyond yourself, even to, to live up to your own standards of morality. You're unwilling to see Jesus for who he really is. We don't acknowledge our need. We don't acknowledge our inability. I mean, I mean how many of us are unable to just even love our spouse well? Or to discipline our children with with any kind of gracious Consistency? How many of us struggle with things secretly that, that we uh, honestly judge other people for? We think, what a fool they are for doing that, that thing. And yet in secret, we do the exact same things or harbor the same attitudes in our own hearts. This is what these religious elites are like. Despite on some level knowing their need for help, like they must know that they don't, they don't actually have it all together. They stuff down that sense. They close themselves to the things of God. They choose deaf ears and blind eyes and trick themselves into believing that they can meet all their own needs. And they've heard Jesus. And they've heard the way he answers every question. They've heard his wisdom. They've seen that he has a mind beyond beyond the mind of man. They've seen him heal the sick and the broken. They've witnessed or at least heard about what he did with bread and fish. And yet, tragically, they can't overcome their self-righteousness. And their skepticism. And rather than asking questions to learn, they ask questions to justify themselves. Some of you are teachers, and you know this kind of student, right? The kind of student who asks a lot of questions, but it's not because they're curious. It's not because they want to understand. It's because they want to win. And they want to challenge you. And they want to push you. Maybe you have a child like that. Anyone have a child like that? Don't raise your hand. It's okay. Uh, But there are some that don't come with genuine curiosity or humility, but rather they come with contempt and hostility, always challenging. And Jesus, we've seen him. He is so full of compassion. He is gentle and lowly. He is welcoming the crowds of all kinds of people to himself. And here, he looks at this gaggle of sign seekers on the beach, and and he just lets out a devastated sigh. I I picture Peter as he is describing this to Mark, as Mark is writing down this gospel, and and he says, everyone could see and hear Jesus sigh. He just looked at them and their questions, and it was like he had almost nothing to say. He just looked so disappointed. If they only knew who they were talking to. If they only knew who they were talking to. And Jesus could barely even speak. He just lets out this visible sigh and then he looks up at them and with fewer than 20 words, the conversation is over. He says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat, And went to the other side. Can you feel at all the exasperation of Jesus in this moment? Like they have God in the flesh standing in front of them. And they can think of nothing better to do than to ask him trick questions. To put up their walls and to to justify themselves. And ask for on-demand miracles. But for Jesus, what what we see is, I have to imagine he's, he's frustrated by this. In a holy frustration. But as he gets in the boat and as he he pushes off with his disciples, it's one thing to be misunderstood by those that you already know don't like you, those that are hostile to you. But what we're going to see is Jesus is about to be misunderstood by those who are closest to him, by those who have been ministering with him side by side for months and years. And, And this would bother you, would bother someone on a whole different level. Watch what happens next. Watch what happens in the boat with the close followers as, as we see the students rebuke. It says, verse 14, Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. What's up with these guys? Like, this is the theme, right? They don't have enough bread. They never have enough bread. They're always forgetting the bread, or they run out, because uh, I don't know who's responsible for the bread, probably Judas, and he's eating it when no one's looking. I don't know. But as they journey across the lake yet again, with, with hours to go, they're in the boat, in the hot sun, it takes maybe three, four hours to get across the lake, and they're collectively hangry and annoyed that they, that they don't have lunch. Meanwhile, you get the sense that Jesus, he's in a, a, a totally different place. He's thinking about different things. You can almost picture him staring out across the water as the boat gently rises and falls, thinking about this interaction that he just had, this terribly disappointing discussion with these Pharisees. Their constant demands, their, their hypocrisy, they're just missing it. And his mind is in, on deeper things. And as, as his disciples are, are doing what we do, squabbling about lunch, thinking about whether we're going to go to cookout or mission barbecue or whatever it is a, after church, his look is far off. And then he turns as he listens to them and he sternly addresses them with a statement that that seems to come from the depth of his thoughts and his emotions. And he doesn't really give it a lot of immediate context. It says, verse 15, and he cautioned them, saying, watch out. They all look at him suddenly. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Watch out. Beware. Beware. Jesus is suddenly very serious, very stern, and this message, is kind of enigmatic. Like, it, it's like, what does he mean? What is he talking about? And when, when we hear that word leaven, some of you know what leaven is very well. Leaven is a, a symbol used in a variety of teachings in scripture. It's actually used a couple of different ways, but what we know about it is that it's this small but powerful element that when you add leaven to the baking process, it gives rise to the bread. Um, it, it, Leavening agents like yeast through a process of fermentation, or I don't really understand it. Someone explained it after the service how this, this works. But when you add it in just a very small quantity to a lump of dough, it will drastically change the nature and the outcome of, of, and the structure of that bread. Is that true? Yeah? Yeah? Okay. And Jesus, it's not, he's not saying, I don't like risen bread. That's not what he's saying. That's not the point. Rather, he's using it as the symbol of subtle corruption that can come in almost undetected and can drastically change one's heart to become hardened, hostile, hypocritical. And the Bible is clear. It says that that we are made for satisfying relationship with God. He has made us for himself, and yet we each have this corruption that comes in that breaks our relationship with him. The Bible describes this as Sin. Now when you hear a word like sin, maybe a lot of things come to mind. You think of the list of things you're not supposed to do, uh, like don't drink or smoke or cuss or, or wear your mask when you're driving by yourself in your car, th- those kinds of things, right? You know, that's how I've actually thought about it for, for most of my life. It was this, this list of no-nos, these things that we're not supposed to do. Um, but actually, I think scripture defines sins that way, yes, but it also defines sin as a concept quite differently. It, it defines it as, as this This permeating corruption that started with Adam and affects all of us, all of humankind ever since. It's not just a a to not do list. It's more like a leaven, a disease, a permeating leaven that, that comes in and alters our very nature. And as a result of sin, we choose ourselves constantly rather than choosing to serve and follow God. We rebel against God. Romans 3.23 says it this way, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't live up to his standards. We don't even live up to our own standards. We are born with a desire to choose ourselves rather than God. And more than the things that we do, at the core of our identity, we all say no to God. And we all say yes to ourselves constantly and would do so for eternity apart from his intervention. That's the reason the world is so broken. We look around and we, we blame God constantly for why things are the way that they are. And the truth is the things are this way because of sin in our hearts. Because of this corruption in our hearts. And Jesus came on a rescue mission to save us from that. Now I'm overstating. Obviously, you're like, you got all that from the leaven thing that Jesus said? No, I'm overstating what Jesus is saying here. But what he's warning against here is this leaven of, of the Herod and the Pharisees. He doesn't go into depth. He simply says, be on guard. Be on guard against these corrupting attitudes that can harden your hearts. Saying, Don't get infected by this stuff. And then here they, they totally miss it. Verse 6 says, and they began to, discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. So they hear this from Jesus. He, he sternly warns them. He cautions them. Don't let this come into your hearts. And they're like, he's mad about the bread too. I told you we were supposed to bring the lunch. I don't know how this went down. They, they had baskets full of broken bread from the last place they went. So maybe they get out on the beach. They unload the bread. He has this brief discussion with the Pharisees and they leave. Somehow they left it all behind. And again, they are focused only on food. Isn't that just like what we do? Like we're in a conversation with someone and, and they're saying something important to us. And all we're thinking about is our own stuff. Like, we're, we're just totally focused on whatever is on the top of our mind. Have you ever been the one in a conversation where, where someone is talking to you and all you can think about is what you are going to say next? Right? We do that, and here the disciples are, are doing that. Jesus says something to them that's actually pretty profound as a warning, and all they're thinking about is what is on their mind, what they want, what they desire. And Jesus, like no other time in scripture that I can think of, maybe you could point to another one, he, he is not gentle and lowly with them in this moment. He actually, he kind of goes off on them in a barrage of questions that, that reveal what I see here as, as just some, some pain and frustration over them totally missing him. And the significance of what he's done already for them. They're missing the point. They can't see who he really is, even though these are his the closest friends. And so, so there's this outburst of questions, of exasperation. You may say, but Mark, he's God. Like, Jesus can't get frustrated. Do you think that's true? No, he does, actually, often in Scripture. What, what, we, what we've come to understand in Scripture, there was a prayer um, about the incarnation, about Advent coming up, where, where Jesus came into human form. God Almighty took on human form. And, and theologians call this kenosis. It's the self-emptying of God. As he came and put on flesh and took on human limitations, he, he subjected himself to, to temptation. He subjected himself to, to have a human body and brain, which is mind-blowing to me. He subjected himself to, to all the hardships of life, to physical exhaustion, to, to sorrow, to all the things that we feel and, and sense. Jesus is not a high priest who is unable to identify with us in our weakness. And here in this moment, I, I know Jesus has this, this direct connection with God the Father through prayer. That's another thing that should, should amaze us, that Jesus prayed constantly to his father. And so he has this intimate connection with his father, but you sense this connection with his disciples. Their understanding of him is broken to some extent. And if he didn't have that constant connection with his father, I just wonder how lonely Jesus would feel in that boat being totally misunderstood by those who are closest to him. These disciples have been with Jesus for months. They've seen him turn Lunchables into enough to feed a stadium. I mean, and they've seen him do this again and again, and again, and here they are worried about bread. But honestly, as I read this passage, and I'm confronted directly with this barrage of questions from Jesus, I see a rebuke and a warning to my own heart. It's this, Mark, you've seen my power in your life. You've been in my presence. You've witnessed miracles. You've been part of ministering with me side by side. Be careful that your heart remains soft. Now, it's not that the disciples were hardened in the sense of rejecting God. That's not what's at risk here. But it's more like they were just dull and inert, like they just were were becoming almost useless. Because despite them knowing the truth, they were not living in response and recognition of who Jesus really is. And Jesus wonders about them. He wonders at this. Do you ever think about the way God sees you? He sees us as his children. When we're in Christ, he sees us as his children. He is full of an infinite love towards us and a grace towards us that we can barely grasp. But does God sometimes wonder at our lives? I'm not saying like he he doesn't know what's going to happen, but does he look upon what we do and our apathy and our repetitive sins and our doubts and our slowness to understand his heart and his ways? Do we live in such a way that that might cause God to, to just want more for us? It's a mystery. I don't, don't quite understand exactly how all these things tie together, our will and, and God's sovereignty. But what I do know is that God is full of grace toward us, and he also calls us to walk in obedience and to do something, to live in response to him. And so if this is you, if, if in our attitudes and our actions this morning, in, in the way we think and the way we're living, we're living in such a way that it would be, bring grief to the holy heart of God, then today is the day to turn and repent. To repent and to to change, to lay those things before Him. Because even Christians can have hard hearts. Pews and pulpits are full of people that, on a head level, know about God, but they don't really know Him here. And God would cause us and call us to repent. And He calls them out, Jesus, in this boat, for having first blind eyes, hard hearts, then blind eyes, and then a temporal focus. He's called them out for, for the potential of having hard hearts. He says, Do you have hard hearts too? Are your hearts hardened? And then he says this in verse 18. Having eyes, do you not see? And ears, do you not hear? He, he, he keeps going. Not only is this an issue of hardness of heart, like they've become apathetic, turned off to, to what is actually going on, but it's also a question of weakness of function. He's like, you have eyes, but you don't see. You have ears, but you don't hear. You don't get it. Your, your functions are barely working. And it's not because you don't have them. It's because you're not using them. There's this, uh, this fish I was reading about this week in preparation for this. It's called a, a and it's in Mexico, it's called a cave tetra. Have any of you ever heard of a cave tetra? So this is a type of fish that lives down in these deep, dark caves in Mexico. And this fish is actually born, when the baby fish are born, they are born with fully functioning eyeballs. Fully functioning. They can see for the first couple weeks. But they spend so much time in darkness so much time away from the light that actually what happens over time is these eyeballs degenerate and, and get reabsorbed into the body so that over time as these fish grow up, they become blind. Now this is it's kind of a picture of, of what can happen even to, to us. It's like seed that gets cast on the ground and springs up quickly. We can see, we can be excited about the things of God, but in our apathy. We can grow cold, hard-hearted, and lose sight. There have been times in your life, I would think, in which you've been able to see the work of God, see the hand of God, see the way that he works by the power of his spirit in a different way. And some of you are in a place right now where where you are not close to the Lord, where you are not seeing his hand, where you are not in tune with his, his spirit. And that's what Jesus is warning against here. He's saying, wake up, wake up, turn back to me. Hard hearts, blind eyes, and lastly, we see a, a temporal focus. These disciples are missing the lesson of Jesus because they're completely absorbed with the here and now. It's all about the next meal, the next thing. What is it for you? Is it the next paycheck, the next vacation, the here and now, the material wants and needs. This week as I was driving uh, with my children to school, my, my daughter said something that caught me off guard. She said something from the backseat of the car like, um, I don't ever want to be rich because being rich is bad. And I, I was like, that's not true. Um, it, it's not. It's not. Because this, this temporal focus, this focus on material things, do you think it only happens to rich people? No. It happens to the poor among us as well. There, there is the possibility that God would have us be both righteous and rich or righteous and poor. And there's also the possibility that we could be unrighteous and rich and, or unrighteous and poor. The point is really, where is our focus? Where is our heart? And, and to the extent our heart is on the things of God, he can do amazing things in his provision to and, and through people. But we need to receive the word of God and, and, and do something in response to it. Recognize God for who he is rather than being constantly pri- preoccupied with the things of this world, like where we're going to get lunch. To each of these attitudes, the response of Jesus is the same. He says, remember what I've seen, you've seen me do in your life. Remember what you've seen me do in your life. He says, do you not remember? When when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And it's almost like their heads go down. They're feeling a little sheepish, and they're like, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? remembering with gratitude what God has done in our lives, looking back at the way he he saved us, the way he's provided for us, the way he's ministered to us, the way he's helped us in our weakness, looking back on those things will cause us to look forward with hope, with expectation, because we know God, and we know the way he is, and it, it allows us to trust in his character. Jesus is pointing back to say, you've seen my true identity. You know who I am. Now live forward like that, in response to that. But the lesson has not been learned yet. It doesn't sink in. So then we move to the senses restored, starting in verse 22. This is going to be the healing of of the blind man. We're going to go through this very quickly, and we may save some of it uh, for next time or for a future week. Um, I don't know, actually. PBJ, it's up to you. It's on you whether you want to, as as the consultants say, table it, um, circle back, and leverage next week to do a deep dive. Do you all know you talk like that? I guess it's ridiculous, okay? Um, (laughs) Hmm. Here he is in verse 22, the senses restored. And they came to Bethsaida and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of the village. Remember from a couple of weeks ago when he healed the man who was deaf and mute, Jesus cares about people, not about performing. It's not about doing a sign for everyone else. He, he brings him away from the crowd just as he did in the past, away from the frenzy of the crowd to give this man his full attention and his full care. And when he had spit on his eyes, and laid his hands on him he asked him do you see anything now this is a, a, again a reinforcement of what we've seen in the past jesus communicates with this man in a way he can understand the man will hear the sound of spitting he will feel the touch of moisture he'll know where it came from and he'll know what's happening and what Jesus intends to do for him. We see that Jesus cares about tenderness, not technique. He, he, he individually responds to this man in a way that expresses his love and gentleness towards him. And it says, the man looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. They look like trees walking. I was talking to someone this week in our church that, that we've been praying for who's, who's dealing with the, the long recovery of an eye surgery. And it's really difficult to even imagine how how that must be. It's amazing what doctors can do now to restore sight, but sometimes the recovery process is really difficult. And he, I said to him something like, um, are you able to see? And he said, well, it's like looking through ocean water. Very similar to, to what this man is dealing with. I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything Clearly. This is what Jesus wants for his disciples. They're seeing through fog. They're seeing his work. They're seeing who he is, but it's like trees walking to them. And here as a picture to them. And when they still don't get it, he lays hands on this man. And the man's sight was restored. And it says he saw everything clearly. What an amazing miracle. What a life-changing moment for this man. And he sent him home to his village saying, Excuse me, and he sent him to his home saying, Do not even enter the village. He doesn't want to make a big scene about this. I want you to notice this is just as an aside that in this one unique case, this healing of Jesus, the opening of the eyes of the blind, it actually happens gradually, not instantaneously. You often hear people talk about healing and prayer for healing, and it's like, if it doesn't all boom happen all at once, then that's not the way healing worked in Scripture. And this ought to be an encouragement to us. As we pray for people, sometimes it won't happen. All at once, but we keep praying, we keep pressing, we keep seeking God. And even better than that, this is a picture of the Christian life. Sometimes we make this mistake of thinking that it's all about just that moment of evangelism where, where someone prays a prayer and they respond uh, to Jesus, and that, that is the most significant moment. But there's something that happens once people come to Christ, and this is our this is our task as a church, is to help people grow from that day into more clarity of sight, to, to more clearly grasp Jesus as revealed. Through his holy word. Paul says this. He's been a Christian for a long time. Walked closer with the Lord and uh, was more full of the spirit in some sense than than any of us. And Paul says it this way, looking forward to the resurrection. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly. But then we'll see face to face. Now I know in part. My knowledge is, is limited. Then I shall know fully. Even as I have been fully As we follow Christ, as we learn how to pray, as we learn how to read his scripture every day, as as we abide in him, as we connect to his local uh, church and and serving and being in fellowship and community together, the idea here is that our eyes will progressively become clearer to see Jesus more and more for who he truly is. You see, the gospel uh, of grace is this, I once was lost, but now i am found. I was blind, but now I see. And this is how we enter into the Christian faith. But this gospel is so deep, this word is so deep. The depths of, of Jesus, we will never fully plumb. And, and so this is not just the entry to the Christian faith when we, when we step into that pool. No, it's actually the deep end. And as we grasp this more and more, we will see God's grace, his justice, and his love all the more. He is deep. Deeper than we can comprehend. So we've seen this then. A satisfied crowd, a sea voyage, skeptics, slow students senses restored, which brings us to the one key turning point in this gospel of Mark. This is where it all hinges as a gospel, and it is this most important question as we come towards a conclusion, as we see the Savior recognized. Jesus went on with his disciples, verse 27, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? After everything they've just been through. He says, who do people say that I am? By the way, this is a great way to get feedback. If, if you're a, an employer and want to get feedback from your staff. Be like, what do the other employees think about me? And then it'll give people permission to actually share what they think uh, under that cover. Jesus does this here. He says, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Like, maybe John the Baptist wasn't actually beheaded. Broke out of prison. Um, maybe the rumors aren't true. And, and so some people are saying, you might be John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, you'll remember Elijah the prophet was taken up to, to heaven in this chariot uh, uh, and, and so maybe he could come back, he didn't actually die. So some people are saying Elijah would return. And others are saying one of the prophets, that prophetic office has returned and, and, and now you and John are, are the new prophets in Israel. They're good guesses, I, I suppose. People are saying that he's this great teacher, that, that he has authority, but they're missing something else. And he asked them, verse 29, verse 29, but who do you say that i am who do you say that i am this is it this is the question this is the question that, that will radically affect where you your sense of where you came from your morality the meaning of your life the destiny where you're going after this life the way you answer this question it all rides on this who do you say that jesus is is he just a prophet is he just a repetition of john the baptist is is he a, just a great moral teacher Or is he something altogether different? C.S. Lewis says this famous quote from from Mere Christianity, and, and many of you will know it. But He says this, he says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. There is no room for a casual response to Jesus. In scripture, we see this clearly as he is ministering to these crowds, as he's doing these mighty works, and as he's battling in engagement with these religious self-righteous, we see that he's met with adoration, he's met with fear, he's met with, with terror, he's met with All kinds of different emotions, but the response to Jesus is never casual. Why? Because Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. To come to take away the sins of the world. The incarnation. God with us. God with us. And if he claimed that, and if that's true, it changes everything. Absolutely everything. Is he crazy or is he the Christ? And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Look how personal this question is. It's for you. Who do you say that Jesus is? Not about what your parents believe. Not about the fact that you were born in America. It's not about what the pastor believes about who Jesus says it is or your spouse. The Lord says, look at me. Who do you say that I am? Who am I to you? And here we finally see the lesson sink in as Peter firmly grasps who it is that he has been calling Lord. Peter answered him, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Who do you say that Jesus is? Don't let today pass without having a discussion about this with someone else. Whatever your answer to that question is at this point, begin to have that conversation about who Jesus claimed to be and who you understand him to be today. Because today may just be the day that your heart is softened your eyes and ears are opened and you begin to see the eternal beyond the temporal. That Today may just be the best day of your existence as you recognize your need for a Savior and that you have one in Christ. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we will never grasp the depths of your love and and your grace toward us. That while we were sinners, you would send your Son to die for us Lord, we thank you for that, that all-sufficient sacrifice of his broken body and shed blood on the cross, and we thank you even more so for the resurrection and that Christ is returning. This is our blessed hope, Lord, that that he will return, that all the dead will rise and those in in Christ will rise to eternal life with him in glory. Oh, Lord, I pray that if there's any areas in our lives, if we're followers of you, where our hearts are hard or our eyes have become, become unclear, to not see you and see your work, I pray you would wake us up, you would, uh, you would quicken us to understand you, to see you, to grasp you, and to join you in the work that you are doing all around us all the time. Lord, fill us with your spirit to be your servants. And Lord, if there's anyone here who has not yet answered that question, I pray today would be the a- day they answer that question of who do you say that Jesus is with a firm and convinced he is the Christ, my, my only Savior. Lord, we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name.